day now. It's uh, the second day of John giving testimony as the Apostle John records for us, the writer of the Gospel, uh, and John the Baptist is the one that is giving testimony. And so if you found your place in verse 29, say amen. Let us read. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. As we come to this passage this morning, we are confronted with the testimony of one named John the Baptist. And his testimony is pointing others to Christ. And we even saw last week how the testimony of John the Baptist, he was concerned to point others to Christ and to deflect any, anything, any attention from being drawn to him. He wanted to, to show all people and point all people toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues in that same fashion and, and in that same style, even as we come to this portion of the passage this morning. And so really there are three testimonies that he gives, beginning in verse 29, going through verse 34 that we will look at this morning. And the first of the three testimonies that he gives, we, we receive an unexpected title of divine sacrifice in this first testimony that he gives, an unexpected title of divine sacrifice in verses 29 and 30. And of course, that unexpected title is the one that we get where he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, up until this point, has been baptizing people and he's been preaching repentance and claiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they're, they're out in the wilderness in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. And John is moved from answering the interrogating questions of those delegation, that delegation that was sent to him. He's been answering these questions. He's doing that on one day. And now on the next day, he's turned his attention to where now he is, he is proclaiming. He's making a proclamation in verse 29. And it's really at this point in John's gospel, or in John's testimony rather, uh, it's, it's really at this point that his testimony kind of hits its climax. It hits its pinnacle. When he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as, as he is there, Jesus comes into the crowd. And he, he, uh, he, he wasn't there at, at, at the point that he began speaking. But then he sees the Lord Jesus Christ there in the crowd. And a couple of things have happened up, into, uh, up to this point, and we know this from, from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus had been baptized, and then the Spirit had already descended as a dove out of heaven and landed upon him. And then Jesus was immediately drove away or, or led away by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for the 40 days. And now he has come back. And so probably this is the first time that John 
sees the Lord Jesus after he's been uh, in, in the wilderness and been uh, tempted by Satan. And as Jesus comes back and John is there preaching to the crowd that's there calling them to repentance, all of a sudden he sees this one that he has been proclaiming and testifying about right there in the crowd. And he says to everybody there in the crowd as he sees him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, look and see. This word behold means see him. Turn, everybody, turn your gaze and look at this one. He is the Lamb of God. It's a tremendous title that John gives the Lord Jesus Christ. Anointed, his lips being anointed by the Holy Spirit at this point, and this being new revelation that John has received from the Father, for no one has ever used this title to speak of the Lord Jesus before. And so he calls him the Lamb of God. In fact, John is the only one in Scripture that uses this title to speak of the Lord Jesus. Many others refer to him as to a lamb or or like a lamb, but John himself calls him the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. You know, when we think of lambs, uh, we think of gentle creatures. We, We think of creatures who are defenseless and vulnerable to predators. We think of that which is meek and innocent and John here in verse 29 is using provocative language not in a in a bad sense but in the sense of of images that are created in the minds of the hearers when they hear lamb of God these things did not go together these mental pictures that that would be conjured up they they were meant to provoke to thinking it connotes the image of sacrifice, as in Genesis 22:7. This is where Abraham and Isaac are going to offer the sacrifice up on the mountain, and God calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son, or his promised son. And so they're heading up the mountain, and as they're going... If you turn to Genesis 22, 7, at some point you can see this in the text. But as they're going, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! With an exclamation point. It's this realization that Isaac has in the midst of their journey up the mountain. He says, My father! And Abraham answers, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. We, we have the fire and we have the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for he himself, or God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It's provocative language. It it conjures up this idea, this, this picture, this mental picture of a sacrifice. The question, where is the lamb, is one that would ring throughout the Old Testament. It connotes the image of provision and Passover as well. The Lamb of God. Passover serves as a theological foundation for John's gospel. And of course, the, the, the institution of the Passover is when the children of Israel are being, being delivered from bondage and, and oppression as they're enslaved in Egypt. 
And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21, the children of Israel were going to be led out of bondage. And then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and and apply some of it, some of that blood to the lintel and the two doorposts of your home. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children for ever this language brings to mind it brings to remembrance god's provision through the blood of lambs to deliver his people from oppression and from bondage he is the lamb of god it also connotes the image of the suffering servant in isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 the suffering servant is It says in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. You know, this becomes clearer in the New Testament. In Philip's gospel proclamation to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, Verse 32, we read where where Philip comes alongside the eunuch and he hears him reading from Isaiah 53, verse 7. He hears him reading this very passage. And at that point, it says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And the Ethiopian believed on Christ and he was baptized at that point. And so it, 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 it connotes these ideas of the suffering servant and it, it brings to mind this idea of, of one who would, who would come and be the provision and the Passover and the image of sacrifice. And I think for John, the Apostle John, the writer of the Gospel, it also connotes this image of the triumphant lamb, of eschatological hope. It brings to mind this hope at the end At the end of time, that Jesus is triumphant. As Dr. David read a few moments ago in Revelation 5, if you want to turn there briefly and follow with me, we won't reread the whole passage, but the scene is one of intensity. As John sees, the Apostle John sees this revelation, and the Lord is, uh, is, is, is speaking to him, and he's writing this down. And it says in verse 4 that he began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it, this book that, that the one who sat on the throne had, God. And then one of the elders said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And then John begins to describe what he sees in this scene in heaven. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, here's what happened. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then it says in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Listen, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Fast forward to verse 13. Verse 12, they were continuing to worship. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and mind and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And these four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. You see, for John, this idea of the Lamb of God, it's a significant thought. It's this new revelation. It's one which hasn't been applied to the Lord Jesus before, to the Messiah that he is the Lamb of God. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, in one sense, the message of the Bible can be summed up in this title. The question in the Old Testament is, where is the Lamb? John's emphasis is, is seen here. Behold, look, see him. Here is the Lamb. He is in your midst. He is right here, the one whom you have been waiting for. Here is the Lamb. John's testimony was this, that God Himself has provided the Lamb for the sins of the people. He Himself has provided the offering to take away the sin of the world. This is the Gospel. This is good news from the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's testimony is here he is. See him standing in your midst. He is here. He is the Lord. The one who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 30 he says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me, after me comes one a man who is higher ranked than I, for he existed before me. It repeats what was already said in verse 15. In chapter 1, verse 15, he, he says the same thing. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is why Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's because he has a higher rank than I, John the Baptist says. And he existed before me. Namely, going all the way back to the prologue in John chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there with God in the beginning, coexistent and co-eternal with the Father. John earlier says, He was 
there in the beginning and he's not even worthy to untie the, the strap or the thong of his sandal. He is so high and so exalted. He is so above me, John is saying. He has a higher rank than I. I can't even, I can't even come close to his rank. And so he's continuing in his testimony and witness to point others to Christ. See him. See him. And in this title, the Lamb of God, he's telling us why the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he might take away the sin of the world. John later writes in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. You see, the word became flesh to take away the sin of the world. And so this word to take away It's an interesting word. It means that he doesn't simply just dismiss our sin or or cover our sin and, and act like it's no longer there, but he literally removes sin from those who are believing in him. There's a transference that that occurs in the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross, whereby Christ himself is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He became the substitute and atone for the sin of his people. And in so doing, he removes sin from the life of his children. And he gives us his righteousness. And so that when we stand before God... We are justified. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus, when we stand before God in His throne, we are justified. That is, we are declared righteous before God. Why? Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ on the cross has done. He has satisfied the wrath of God by offering Himself, the Lamb, to God the Father as the sacrifice so that he might pay the penalty that we could never pay. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the Lamb of God, He takes away the sin of the world. You know, this distinguishes Jesus from John. It distinguishes Jesus from every other religious leader that has ever walked the earth. No one else can do what Jesus Christ has done. No one else can take away the sins of the world. No one else can die in your stead to take away your sin. This is, this is God's grace extended to us in Christ that he sent his son to reconcile the world to himself. It's God's mercy extended to us in Christ in that he suffered in our place. And John is pointing us to see the Lamb of God. He's saying, look, see him. See him. He is worthy. Jesus is worthy. 
My friend, let me tell you this morning, Jesus is so worthy. He is worthy of all of our praise. He is God's provision and Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice given for the sake of God's people. He's a suffering servant beaten and bruised. And he is the triumphant lamb who has won the victory before which everyone one day will bow and say worthy is the lamb. I want to ask you, can you say this morning deep in your soul, can you say worthy is the lamb? In the midst of everything in life, are you ready to make that declaration and that profession? To say worthy is the Lamb? To ascribe Him worth? To say praise you, Lord Jesus? I'll go where you go. I'll, I'll follow where you lead. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. I, you are so worthy. You're so much higher than me. You rank so much above me. Are we ready to make that declaration like John the Baptist? Say, worthy is the Lamb. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I pray this morning that He's taken away your sin. I pray that everyone in here has been born again of God, as Jesus says with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, to be born of the Spirit of God, to be born from above, to have new life. The second portion of John's testimony begins in verse 31. An unknown revelation of divine disclosure. An unknown revelation of divine disclosure. By unknown, I mean in verse 31 what John says. I did not recognize him. I didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. I didn't recognize that he was the, the promised one of God. I didn't recognize it. But he says, I came baptizing in water so that his identity would be revealed. In fact, John only knew what God had told him to do. And so here's John the Baptist faithfully serving the Lord, being a, a faithful witness. But John had seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remaining on him. And we see in verse 33, he confesses again, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. First, I want to say that this text really isn't about Christian baptism. But instead, it's about a distinction between John's baptism, which was in preparation to reveal the Messiah, and the reality that Jesus is the Messiah on whom the Holy Spirit rested. You see, John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. It was a baptism of, of purification. It was unique in that it was the precursor to the arrival of Christ, and it served to reveal the Christ. But it it's not the same as Christian baptism. For we even see this in Acts chapter 19, verses 3 through 5, the disciples, that all the disciples of John were, would be rebaptized in, in Jesus' name. In Acts 19, 3, it says, And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so John's making even a distinction here, saying my baptism was a a baptism in water, right? It was just preparatory for the one who was to come. But the one who comes, the one whom I have seen, where the Spirit descended from heaven and landed on him and remained on him, it's him, it's he that baptizes in the Spirit. Not just in water, but in the Spirit. And there's this huge distinction. It's like, it's like Jesus is higher rank than I am. Not, I'm not worthy to untie uh, the, the thong of his sandal. And it's the same thing here with baptism. He's saying, my baptism, it's not even in the same category as that of Jesus, the one who is coming, or the one who has come. He is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. There's been much written and much debate over this very phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the one, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. But I want us to walk through John briefly and see how Jesus speaks about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And I think this is what John is is intending us to understand. John the Apostle, the Gospel writer, is intending us to understand as as he pins these words from the lips of John the Baptist. And that is, first and foremost, we understand this. That John is speaking of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit with whom Jesus will bestow on all those who are his. And there is only one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is a distinction that John makes. And that one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, that one is Jesus This is about the authority of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is able to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to the convert. The Holy Spirit cannot be purchased. We learn that from Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Jesus spoke of that which was to come in the baptism of the Holy Spirit in John 7, 39 where he said this, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what he's saying is, at that point with which I die and raise from the grave and ascend to the Father, that's the point with which I will send the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon my people. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even as the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In John fifteen twenty six, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit the paraclete, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 
John chapter 16, verses 7, 11, th- 7 through 11. I won't read all of that, but you can look there as well and ramp- reference that. In, in, in verse 13 of John chapter 16, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are, that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then after his resurrection, Jesus sees his disciples. And as he sees his disciples, he greeted them. And in John twenty twenty one, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so as he breathes on them, they receive the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. You see, when Jesus baptizes his people in the Holy Spirit, it has to do with the presence and the power of God in the life of the believer And every believer in Jesus Christ who has been converted and placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, they have received the gift of the Holy Spirit in their life. But there's one area of doctrine, perhaps, that, and theology, perhaps, that Baptists are weak in. It tends to be in the theology of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And sometimes there almost seems to be a fear of becoming too mystical or something. I want you to hear what John says about Jesus here, that he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Jesus commissions his saints, even here in in verse 21 of chapter 20, for the purpose of shining the light of Christ with the gospel to illuminate the darkness of the world. Even as you're hearing this message this morning, if you're, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I don't sense the presence or, or the empowering of the Holy Spirit of God in my life, and I would encourage you to evaluate your walk and, and your obedience to Christ and ask God to reveal, perhaps reveal to you, how you might be quenching the Holy Spirit in your life. For God has given each and every believer the deposit, the good deposit of the Holy Spirit And, you know, we're all guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit in our lives. Francis Chan wrote a book, The Forgotten God, that deals with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and talks about how we have kind of moved the Holy Spirit out of our uh, daily prayer life or out of our dependency upon God, and this is not how God designed it. You know, there are times in our walk with the Lord where we, we sense an unusual empowerment and Perhaps this is one of the ways that we experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even that term has been somewhat twisted and and redefined by some charismatic movements. But hear me foundationally at, at what I'm saying this morning. The power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. There there are times when there is an unusual sense of empowerment for a specific God-given task. And this too is a gifting from God in the life of the believer. 
One of the many examples we, we see of this is it, it occurs in, in the New Testament when Peter and John had been released from prison in Acts chapter 4. And then they went and they joined with the prayer, uh, with the prayer time of the saints who were gathered together praying. And in Acts 4.29, they prayed, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And it answers in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Hear me out. When John says that this is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, He is speaking of the power of God in the life of the believer, of God's power being poured out upon the believer. Power for what? Power to live in obedience to Christ, power to walk with him. What he says in in Philippians chapter 2, that it is God who's both at work in you and to will according to his good pleasure. This is the power of God working in the believer in order to help us to walk in in obedience to Christ, but also the power of God in the life of the believer uh, to to, to anoint our lips to say things that we're like, where did that come from, right? To share the gospel and to share testimony with others. To live a life of holiness devoted to God. Listen, believer, you don't have to live an obedient life to Christ in your own strength and on your power in your own power. In fact, you cannot live an obedient life to Christ in your own strength and your own power. It's by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we are strengthened and, and, and taught the Word of God. The Holy Spirit illumines our minds and teaches us how to know what the Word of God is saying teaches us how to react to a specific situation, sharpens us, and and shows us how to live for the glory of Christ. God has placed His Holy Spirit within the believer because He wants to empower us to live for Him, to be a testimony, to be a witness for His glory. So I ask you this morning, What's it look like in your prayer life in the mornings or throughout the day? Evaluate your prayer life, maybe. And are you saying, God, I need you. Holy Spirit, lead me. Holy Spirit, teach me how to respond. Teach me how to walk. Holy Spirit, bring to remembrance that which I said this morning, which I read this morning, that I might live it out today. Go with me. Be my steps. God, anoint me with your spirit today. Let me walk closer to you today than I did yesterday. Let me follow closer to you today. Let me be more captivated by you. May, may you have more of me today than, 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 than you had yesterday. What's your prayer life look like in, in calling out to God? Are you asking for sensitivity or discernment to the spirit of God in your life or Are you asking God to lead you and to to direct you, to give you strength in the midst of this trouble? Listen, it's the Holy Spirit of God that Paul says in Romans that he prays for us with groanings that are too deep for words when we cannot pray. I, I don't want to just read and intellectually affirm that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
and that that's why his baptism is distinct from John's. But I want to live in such a way that I know the indwelling power of Holy Spirit who dwells in me and that he wants to work through me to accomplish his will, that I'm surrendered to him. This is what it means to walk in Christ and to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be a, a follower of him. And all those who are followers of Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Are we yielded? Are we yielded to him? Believer, are you you daily operating by your own mind and will and strength, or are you operating and living by the power of the Holy Spirit within you? And trying to live the Christian life, trying to be obedient in morals and ethics, but void of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? The last point I want us to see in John's testimony this morning is an undeniable reality of divine personhood. John points us to an undeniable reality. And the undeniable reality, he says in verse 34, is this. I myself have seen with my own eyes. In other words, I've seen this. I've looked and I've seen him. I saw the spirit descending as a dove and landing on him. I've seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is the second title that John ascribes to Jesus in these few verses, that he is the Son of God. And we see this in the synoptics as well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not just in John. But we are, we are all children of God who profess faith by believing upon Christ in, in, in a sense of being sons and daughters of God. But Jesus is unique in his sonship in that John's point is that he shares the same nature as the Father. And this echoes the affirmation that John gave us in, in verse 18 here in chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that is Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And basically we said that word he has explained him is a word where we get exegesis from to exegete uh, a passage to to read what's there and to take it and to understand it and to unpack it and to show us that's exegesis. And that's what happened when Jesus came. He is the one who has explained the father. And so as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He is the Son of God who is the same nature as the Father. And Jesus, being the Son of God who has explained God to us, says, if you have seen Me, you've seen the Father in John 14, 7. He says, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10, verse 30. In John 17, He says, Father, keep them in Your name that they may be one as we are one. John reveals this undeniable reality of Jesus' identity that he is the Son of God, the one who has stepped down out of heaven and walked the earth, the Word becoming flesh. I want to ask you this morning, do you know the Son of God? Are you living for the Son of God? Do you know the Lamb of God? Has He taken away your sin? 
Believer, are you walking as a disciple of Christ and depending daily upon him to sustain you and empower you? I know that we all fail at times. And I'm encouraging us to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. Are you living a life of surrender to Christ and experiencing the joy that comes from living for him? I want to close with this one question this morning. All of us in here, as we've sat and we've heard the word of God, do we believe John's testimony about Jesus? Do we believe the testimony that John has given us about this Lord Jesus? I'm going to close in prayer, and I want to invite you to meditate upon the Word of God this morning. Maybe spiritually you're at a very healthy place, and you just want to praise God because He is the Lamb and He is worthy. Maybe this morning spiritually you're in a sick place, and you need to confess some things before the Lord. Maybe there's some things that just aren't right, and you need to confess those before the Lord. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus Christ and he's not taking away your sin, but the Lord is calling you and you're ready for him to take away your sin. You're ready to surrender and submit your life to him. I want to encourage you, don't delay in surrendering to him and repenting of your sin and seeking his forgiveness. For he is ready and willing to pour his grace out upon you. Let us pray. Father, as we come now to the close of our corporate worship time we thank you that you are present with us Lord I pray that you would continue to work in our lives and continue God to to draw us near to you continue father to teach us about your Holy Spirit's present in our presence in our life and how you work and and you 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 work through us and you empower us to live for you And Lord, if there's any this morning who are struggling with sin, I pray that you would strengthen them to confess that to you, to relent and to repent and to turn and to walk with you. We pray for your strength, God, to respond and commit to living for you as only you can give us by your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.